All right, when I say Sermon on the Mount, what do you think of? That's good. Somebody, what? Beatitudes? Is that it? A lot of people, is that what you said? We'll talk about that in a minute. When I say Sermon on the Mount, what do you think? Sermon by Jesus? What's that? Those that are blessed starts it off, Beatitudes? It's what, Miss Shirley? The nitty-gritty of living. Kathy, did you say something? It is lengthy. How many chapters is it? Three chapters. Chapter 5 through chapter 7, right? We're going we're gonna to do something a little different here in a little bit tonight. Um, but I, I, we're going to introduce the Sermon on the Mount. And over the next few weeks, we're going to walk through it. I have no idea how long it will take. I'll tell you this. It will probably take longer than I think it will take. Okay? Because there's a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters of pretty packed teaching. As I was preparing today, I found this story by a pastor that was in the Chicago area when he gave it. He's not there now, but in the Chicago area. And he tells the story of going to a, a steakhouse-like place one day. And the way he described it, I, I envision somewhere like a Longhorn, you know, somewhere that it's not, not, a, not the Palm or Ruth Chris, but a decent steakhouse. And he said it was one of those steakhouses where it was a pretty nice place, but they also had a salad bar. And he said the waitress, one of the waitresses at the place was coming out with one of those big containers of Thousand Island dressing, as he said, to fill up the feed trough, all right? And so as she's walking out, she tripped. And the dressing flies. And it lands on a man. And he said almost immediately, this guy goes ballistic. Starts yelling at the girl. In words of this pastor, he said, he used every name I'd ever heard a high school football coach use on his players with that girl in the span of about two minutes. I can't believe how ridiculous this is. Look what you did. This is the first chance I've had to wear this suit. It's a $350 suit and you have ruined it. I mean, some of you can imagine a scenario like that. And she said, sir, sir, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Here, help me help you clean. She said, stop it. You've done enough. And then his wife started chiming in. That's right, it's $350. $350. What are you going to do about it? Everybody in the whole restaurant is watching, and the man finally says, I need to see a manager right now. So she goes and gets the manager. The manager comes out and says, Sir, is there a problem? Which is probably not the best question to ask when he's got Thousand Island dressing over. And he said, this ridiculous girl of yours has ruined this suit. It's a $350 suit. It's the first time I've worn it. And the manager said, I'm sorry, sir. We'll take care of it. We'll get it clean for you. He said, I don't want it cleaned. I want a new suit. $350. That's what I want right now. So the manager disappeared. The guy went with him. And they said everybody in the restaurant just assumed that there was a check being written in the back for this man. As pastor said, what made this... Interesting for me was not just the guy's reaction, but that it happened about 1230 on a Sunday afternoon. And he said, I tried to think of other places that he would have worn his brand new suit to besides 
church on a Sunday morning. But the most likely answer is that he had just come from a place where he was told about loving his neighbor. And he went ballistic when a little dressing got on his suit. People who work in food service will tell you, you know what their least favorite time to work is? Sunday afternoon when the church people get out. They're the rudest and tip the least. Now, we're called to be different, right? Now, not different like that guy was different. We're called to be different. Different in restaurants. Different in the workplace. Different at the ball field. Different in the cubicle. Different at the golf course. Different in the classroom. Different in society. Different in public discourse. The very first sermon Jesus ever preached is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And it's a sermon about being different. And how being different brings true satisfaction and fulfillment. Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's counter-cultural teaching. Jesus laid them out like steps, like rungs on a ladder. They get more and more difficult. Now, the impact of this sermon is so amazing that it's hard to overestimate its value. St. Augustine, for example, described it as the perfect standard for the Christian life. Poet and pastor John Donne wrote poetically, As nature hath given us certain elements, and all our bodies are composed of them, and art hath given us certain alphabets of letters, and all our words are composed of them, so our blessed Savior in these three chapters of this gospel have given us a sermon of text of which all our sermons may be composed. All the articles of our religion... All the canons of our church, all the injunctions of our princes, all the homilies of our fathers, all the body of divinity is in these three chapters in this one sermon on the mount. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which for a good section of the book, the seminal work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is simply an exegesis of the sermon on the mount. Even on people that aren't believers. In fact, it is common knowledge that the entire political approach of a man named Mahatma Gandhi was fashioned after trying to implement the Sermon on the Mount. Those that hate Christianity hate this message. Friedrich Nietzsche, you know Nietzsche, right? The God is dead philosopher said that slave morality is seen in this message. And when his ideas started to take root in the National Socialism Movement, anybody know what that is? The Nazis. When it started to take root in the Nazis, they tried to find a way to get around believing parts of the Bible, but not the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, one of their authors, a guy named Alfred Rosenberg, modified this so that people could remain within Christian tradition, but not have to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone in Western civilization has been touched in some way by this sermon. No one can legitimize, legitimately minimize its influence. And for believers, I believe it is the greatest sermon ever preached. Why? Well, first of all, because of who gave it. Who spoke the Sermon on the Mount? 
Jesus. It's the first recorded sermon we have. Now, before you, before you get excited about something here in a minute, okay? Because you think it's the greatest sermon ever preached. It's only three chapters. That's like a third of what Brother Lyle does on Sunday morning. So here's what you need to understand. It probably was an hours-long sermon that Matthew condensed for us. Okay? So don't think Jesus spoke ten minutes. Why can't our pastor? All right? It's compacted, congealed theology of Christ. It is perhaps the most profound section of Scripture in the entire New Testament or even the entire Bible. Every phrase can bear exhaustive exposition and yet not be fully understood. Along with it, it's one of the most penetrating sections of God's Word. I mean, when you read it, it is like an x-ray machine has been turned on your soul. I mean, if you read it and think about it, it is one of those things that will convict you. Someone has said that it is violent. It is violent in the way it confronts us. But in its violence, if we listen, can be our ongoing liberation. It is the antidote to pretense and sham that plagues Christianity. And for me, the sermon on the mount has had a significant impact on my life. In fact, the first set of sermons I ever preached, the first series of sermons I ever preached was from this. So it's kind of interesting about that. It's been a long time since I've re-examined it as a whole. But my first set of sermons, I was 17, 18 years old. I was really just a kid. I mean, some of you think I'm still just a kid, but I was really just a kid, talking like 20 years ago. I got asked to preach at a small church, Evansville Baptist Church. I've told some of you this before. I've told the group this before. The first Sunday I was there, there were literally like 16 people there, 17 people, and nine of them were my family and friends that had come with me. And I got asked to preach for two or three weeks in a row, and I did the Beatitudes. That's what I did. I got asked to do a youth camp. I did the Beatitudes because I had read a really cool book on the Beatitudes, and I could, thought, well, I can preach it. Uh, two or three books I'd accumulated in that time, some of which I went and pulled off the shelf today I'd forgotten about. But it's had an impact on me. My prayer is that over the next few weeks, however long it takes, from now till 2018, whatever it takes, we won't be that long. We at least won't take more than a year. Um, that it will impact us and lift us out of the mediocrity that Christianity finds itself in so often. Now, who, who did he give this sermon to? Anybody seen any movies about where he does kind of snippets of this? Anybody seen any movies? In the movies, if you've seen them, who's he usually talking to? Lots and lots of people, right? Is that what the Scripture says? Kathy, read that first part. What does it say? Yeah. There's dispute about what that means. There's some people that think the crowds got really big and Jesus goes up on the mountainside so everybody can hear him. You realize they did not have microphones in that day. And to be able to speak where people could hear, you had to get up above them. Okay? And sometimes they would form kind of natural amphitheaters. So some people think that's what happened. Other people think that what happens is the crowds start getting really big and Jesus needs some private teaching time. In fact, some, some uh, interpretations, some translations say the crowds are getting big so Jesus took his disciples up on the mountainside to get away. Okay? So is it the disciples like the twelve? And the rest of Matthew, when it talks about the disciples, is talking about the twelve. Or is it the disciples, the hundreds that had come to listen? Here's the answer. I don't know. 
I don't think it matters. Because the point is, whatever he shared with, if it was the 12 or it was the 400 or 1,000 or 2,000, the point is they were supposed to take it in, understand it, live it, and take it and share it. So whether it was the 12 and that was their job, or whether it was the multitude, it's the same thing for us. I mean, what's easy to understand is that the content of this sermon is not meant for the exclusive spiritually elite. There's no hierarchy of this is for the people that are really serious about Jesus, and then there's some other people. I did something today I've never done before. I listened to the announcement of the new pope. Okay, I was going to lunch. I had was going to a little bit of a late lunch and got in the vehicle about one o'clock and checked Twitter right before I got in. And all I saw on Twitter is white smoke is coming. I never cared so much about black smoke or white smoke. Not that I really care that much, but I mean, really, everybody went in a frenzy. White smoke is coming, so somebody's being introduced, and they went through. And so in my in my car, I have satellite radio, and I have a channel called the Catholic Channel. And if you're I figure if I'm going to listen to him announce the new Pope, you might as well listen on the home team channel, right? And so I went and listened to two Catholic priests talk about what was coming, and they were there, and they were talking about it. And they started to talk about the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and how you move through the ranks to finally get to be Pope. And I couldn't help but think about what I was here, where Jesus is giving the most in-depth yet basic teaching of the Word not to popes and Pharisees and Sadducees and scholars. He's giving it to fishermen and tax collectors. He's giving. Whoever else is there, he is giving ordinary people the most impactful and deep theological teaching you can give. Now, if you read some of this, you'll think that's not that deep. But if you study it, it is. It's deep. Didn't go to the Pope. It went to the plumber. Right? He wouldn't have been in the midst of Rome giving it to the Cardinal's conclave. He would have been giving it in the streets to whoever would listen. And so it's our responsibility, no matter who it was originally given to, to understand it and to live it. As radical as its demands are, they are for us. The concern, somebody says, is that it expressed the will of God with theological and ethical considerations. It's not for an exclusive view. It's all that are in a committed discipleship relationship with the Lord. Dallas Willard says, What we have come to call the Sermon on the Mount is a concise statement of Jesus' teaching on how to actually live in the reality of God's present kingdom available to us from the very space surrounding our body. And then he answers two questions in here. He answers, first of all, what is the good life? What makes life good? What makes life important? What makes life fulfilling? What makes life good? The second question he asks is, not just what is the good life, but who is the good person? Now the answer is one who acts and behaves and has the character of God himself. Well, what does that look like? What does that sound like? What does that feel like? 
From Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, He gives us the answer. Here's what I want to do, all right? If you've got your Bibles, open up to Matthew 5 if you haven't already. I'm going to preach the Sermon on the Mount, okay? I don't have it memorized, so I'm going to read it some, all right? I'm going to read it, preach it from a translation that you probably don't have with you. Somebody may, but probably don't. You can try to follow along. But here's my guess, and I may be wrong about this. Maybe this has happened. My guess is most of us have never heard it aloud from beginning to end. We've read bits of it. We may have read it, you know, sitting down and reading through, but not heard it proclaimed. So I'm just going to preach it. I'm going to use my voice and inflect at points and read from a translation that may make you go, what is that? I, don't, I didn't get that. That's not what it says in mine. Just listen, all right? Next week, we're going to dive in and start verse by verse going through it. But I want us to get the whole picture. I mean, I can't imagine how misunderstood one of my sermons could be if you only talked about the first two minutes of it out of 30, right? And what do we do with Jesus' sermon here? We talk about the first couple of minutes. And there are times I don't even get into the meat of the sermon until like 30 minutes in, right? I didn't get any amens there. Jesus gave this as a sermon. So here we go. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed on a hillside. And those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. You're blessed when you come to the end of your rope. Because at the end of your rope, you have less. And with the less, there is more of God and His rule. You're blessed when you lose what you think is most dear to you. Because only then can you be embraced by the one who is truly most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with what you have. No more, no less. The moment you find yourself proud owners of nothing is the moment you find yourself Proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the meal is the best you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. I mean, at the moment when you become full of care is the moment you'll find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can truly see God outside. You're blessed when you show people how to cooperate with one another instead of competing or fighting. That's when you discover who you really are in your place in God's family. And you are blessed when your commitment to me leads to persecution. That persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, you are to count yourself blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close to them. They're uncomfortable in that. Get excited when that happens. Give a cheer. For though they don't like it, I do. And all of heaven applauds. Know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into trouble like that. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. And if you don't do that, then who will? 
How will people taste the godliness that is intended if you lose your saltiness? You've lost your usefulness. You'll be thrown out with the trash. Or to put it another way, you're here to be light. To bring out all of the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. There are no closet believers. We're going public with this. As public as putting a city on top of a hill. If I make you light bearers, do you think I'm going to hide you away? No. I'm going to put you on a stand. And now that I do that and I put you on the hilltop, here's my request. Shine. Be open to people. Keep an open house. Be generous with your lives. Opening yourself up to others, you'll prompt people to open up to God and to the generous Father in heaven. Now, don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish the Scripture, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish them. I'm here to complete them. I'm going to put it all together, to put it together into a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out, long after the earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. If you trivialize even the smallest item in God's law, you will have only trivialized yourself. Take it seriously. Show the way for others and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless, unless you do far better than these Pharisees are doing in the matters of right living, you don't even know the first thing about entering the kingdom. Now, now you've heard it said before that you're not supposed to murder but I'm telling you, anyone that gets so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. I mean, carelessly calling a brother idiot or stupid. You might find yourself hauled into court or on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is, words kill. This is how I want you to act in matters like these. If you get to church and you're about to worship, and you're about to give your offering, and suddenly you remember that you have a grudge against a friend or Somebody has something against you. Abandon what you're doing. Leave immediately. Go find them and make things right. Then and only then, come back. Work things out with God. Or say you're out on the street and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court, maybe even jail. Now that happens. You're not going to get out with anything less than a stiff fine. You know that next commandment too, right? Don't go to bed with another person's spouse, but don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they're corrupt. Hey, let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. And you have to chop off your right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly. Better a bloody stump than your entire being discarded for good in the dump. I mean, you quote the scriptures, whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, give her divorce papers and legal rights. Too many of you are using that as cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you're legal. Please. No more pretending if you divorce your wife. You're responsible for making her an adulteress. Unless she's already done that by sexual promiscuity. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. You can't use legal cover to mask moral failure. And don't say anything you don't mean. 
Men's counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk. I'll pray for you and never doing it. Or God be with you and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious labels. And making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes or no. You manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. Here's another one of those sayings that some of you say, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Is that really going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you to court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make it a present. When someone takes unfair advantage, you use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit for tat. Live generously. You're familiar with the old saying, love your friend, and the corollary that goes with it, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out your true selves, your God-created self. That's what God does. He gives His best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone regardless, the good, the bad, the nice, the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those that greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. But be careful that when you're trying to be so good that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. When you do something for somebody else, you're calling attention to yourself. You've seen people like this in action. We call them play actors. I call them treating prayer meeting and street corner alike as a stage. Acting compassion as long as someone is watching. Playing to the crowds. They get applause right, but that's all they get. When you help somebody out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it quietly, unobtrusively. This is the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat for your performance? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can. The focus will shift from you to God and you'll begin to sense His grace. Just so you know, this world is full of so-called prayer warriors that are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your Father you're dealing with and He knows you better than you want. He knows what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can just pray simply, something like, Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set this world right. As it is up there, let it be down here. And give us our three square meals a day. and Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving of others. Keep us safe from your adversary, the devil. Because you're in charge. You can do anything you want. You are ablaze in beauty. In prayer, there's a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. 
If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. And when you decide to practice some appetite-denying discipline to better concentrate on God, don't make a production out of it. It might turn you into a tall-town celebrity, but it won't make you a saint. If you're going into training inwardly, act normal outwardly. Shampoo, comb your hair, brush your teeth, wash your face. God doesn't require attention-getting devices. He won't overlook what you're doing. He'll reward you well. Don't hoard treasures down here where it gets eaten by moss and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? I mean, the place where your treasure is, that's where you're going to want to be. That's the place you're going to end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide and wonder and believe, your body fills up with light. But if you live squinty-eyed and greed and distrust, your body's a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. What I'm saying is you can't worship both God and money. You can only worship one. And if you decide to follow God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There's far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. I mean, look at the birds, free, unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God, and you count far more to Him than the birds. Has anyone been fussing in front of a mirror ever gotten taller by so much as an imp? All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes a difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out in the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but you ever seen color and design quite like that? The ten best dressed men and women in the country look shabby next to those flowers. If God gives so much attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think He'll attend to you? Take pride in you and do His best for you. What I'm trying to get you to do here is to relax. To not be so preoccupied with getting that you can't respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way He works fuss over these things, but you both know Him and how He works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provision. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. Don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. And don't pick on people. Jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. I mean... That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging, coming right back at you. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's the whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again. Play a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Don't be flip with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mystery to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. Don't bargain with God. Be direct. Ask for what you need. 
This isn't a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. If your children ask for bread, do you trick him for sawdust? If he asks for fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? I mean, as bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think God, who conceived you in love, will be even better? Here's a simple rule of thumb for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. Then grab the initiative and do that for them. Add up God's laws and prophets, and that's what you get. And don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though the crowds do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practical sincerity. Chances are they are out to rip you off somewhere or the other. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocket, but these diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. Knowing the correct password, I mean saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what the Father wills. I can see it now on the final judgment day. Thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message. We bashed the demons. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say to them? I'm going to say, you missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. Get out of here. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. Homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are the foundational words Words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on a solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in the Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. Quite a contrast to their religious teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. Next week, we start diving in. Let's pray.